You're listening to So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about the world of writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, where you'll find writing courses and an incredibly supportive writing community. I usually co-host this podcast every week with Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author extraordinaire, and her latest book is The Firestar, a Maven and Reef mystery, and very soon, The Wolf's Howl. I am without... Alison in this in-between episode, and I'm going to treat you to a story session, just you and me and our guest author of the week. So this is where you hear the first chapter of a book that we recommend and usually some insights from the author as well as we have this week. Think of it as having your own private reading from the author themselves. You get to sample something new without having to step outside your front door. And we're bringing the literary salon straight to your ears so you can listen while you're lounging in the bath or doing the dishes. (laughs) Anyway, this week I have chosen Thursdays at Orange Blossom House by Sophie Green. This is another delightful novel about friendship from the best-selling author of The Shelley Bay Ladies Swimming Circle and the inaugural meeting of the Fairvale Ladies Book Club. Once again, Sophie has created wonderful characters who feel like friends that you just want to connect with again and again. Here's the blurb so you can find out a little bit more about what the book is about. Far North Queensland, 1993. At 74, former cane farmer Grace Maud is feeling her age and her isolation and thinks the best of life may be behind her. Elsewhere in town, high school teacher Patricia has given up on her dreams of travel and adventure and has moved back home to look after her ageing parents, while cafe owner Dorothy is struggling to accept that she may never have the baby she and her husband so desperately want. Each woman has an unspoken need, reconnection, and that's how they find themselves at Orange Blossom House, surrounded by perfumed rainforests, being cajoled and encouraged by their yoga teacher, the lively Sandrine. Together, they will find courage and strength and discover that life has much more to offer than they ever expected. Set amid the lush beauty of tropical Queensland, Thursdays at Orange Blossom House is a heartwarming story of friendship and family, of chances missed and taken, and the eternal power of love. And we have a treat for you because before she reads from her novel, Sophie has answered some of my probing questions about her writing process, so you get to hear the story behind the story. Here's Sophie Green, and then the reading from her novel, Thursdays at Orange Blossom House. Hello, I'm Sophie Green, and I'm the author of Thursdays at Orange Blossom House. Valerie asked me to record the answers to some questions before I narrate the first chapter of the novel. So here are the questions and here are the answers. The first question is what inspired me to write this story? So the story opens in 1993 in far North Queensland and at the core of it is a yoga class taught by a woman called Sandrine. I started practicing yoga in 1993 in a church hall on the upper North shore of Sydney And I still practice yoga and I also teach yoga, which I've been doing since 2002. And I have been introduced to such a huge world of information and joy and connection through my practice and through teaching that it caused me to think about yoga as a a way to bring people together because it's certainly done that for me. Uh, And also 
to help women in particular, the women in this story, gain an insight into themselves, their lives and their bodies through the practice of yoga. And the teacher, Sandrine, in the novel is the only character who is at all based on me. Uh, She's not like me, but the things she says in class in the novel are certainly things that I have said in class. So if you want to know what it's like to have a yoga class with me, just read Sandrine. Uh, The second question is... Can I describe my writing process? Um, I plan a lot these days. I have a full-time job and a few other things going on in my life, so I find that it's best to rigorously plan because I don't have a lot of time to write every day and I'm doing it around full-time work. Uh, And I used to write on public transport to and from work, but last year with COVID and lockdown, there was no commuting, so I did not have that time and I had to come up with a different way of, of writing um, and working uh, on my story. So I uh, so this novel was written during that time and I, it is the most planned of any of my novels in that I, I do a lot of documents before I start. So I do character profiles, I work up plot points, major plot points, minor plot points, minor characters. I give everyone names or everyone I can think of. Characters are, do appear during the writing of the novel so they – will be given names as as needed. But, uh, yeah, planning is is what works for me. I'm not one of those people, I think I probably used to be, but I'm not one now who can sit down and just write and write and write without any kind of plan. I just don't have enough time because I only have about an hour a day to write and I do it at night. Um, and if I was spending a lot of time thinking about what I were to write in that one hour, I think I'd be wasting a lot of time. So I plan. And then I sit down at night and I write what I can and I don't fret about how many words I get out or don't get out. Whatever comes out that night is perfect. The third question is, what was the most challenging aspect of writing this book? Actually, it wasn't a writing challenge. Uh, It was a life challenge in that I found out I needed to have major surgery in the middle of uh, redrafting the novel and didn't have a lot of time anyway to redraft the novel and the surgery was going to knock out quite a few weeks just because you can never predict um, how a general anesthetic will affect memory and um, other things to do with the brain and I I didn't want to take any risks so I did as much as I could before the surgery and then had a few weeks off in the middle and went back to the novel once I felt I was compass enough Uh, so it was just one of those things that happens in life um, and just got to roll with it. Go with the flow, as we might say in a yoga class. The fourth question is, what was the most rewarding aspect of writing this book? Finishing it. I think given the surgery I just mentioned uh, and everything else that goes on when I'm also writing, I always think that finishing the manuscript, finishing the redrafts, actually sending that book to the printer is incredibly rewarding because I'm never quite sure that I ever will reach that point. But look, it's also really rewarding for me to spend time with the characters. Even though I create them pretty quickly in the writing process, they feel like they don't come from me anymore. So I feel like I'm spending time with with people I'm very fond of who are revealing themselves to me constantly along the way. And it's a really rewarding experience to spend that time with them. Fifth question is, what are my top three tips for aspiring writers? Well, the first one is get out of your own way. 
we could all put a lot of obstacles in our paths, including saying that we're not good enough to do whatever it is we want to do. Um, and we can trip ourselves up with those obstacles and we can keep tripping ourselves up for the rest of our lives if we want. But ultimately, if you do want to write something and complete it and show it to people, you need to get out of your own way. And it's somewhat related to the second tip, which is to get over yourself. Uh, it's so easy to tie ourselves up in ego knots. Stop it. <laughs> um, I think what I see a lot with other writers, uh, because I work in the publishing industry, so I do work with a lot of other writers, is that we can really overthink and rev around certain points to do with whether you know, whether we're good enough to write this book or whether we're too good to write this book or whatever it is. Um, ultimately, you're there to serve the story. So put yourself and your ego aside and serve that story. And that's actually related to the third tip I have, which is that if you're writing because you'd like to be published, remember that you're writing for other people, not for yourself. And that's the difference between, well, there are all sorts of different types of writing and it's absolutely fine and wonderful to write for yourself, but that's writing that should stay with you or perhaps to people who know you very well. If you're writing because you want to tell a story or write a nonfiction book or whatever it is for an audience, then you need to think about that audience because it doesn't become about you anymore. The story is not going to belong to you once it's published. So ultimately, uh, well, that's I like to think about the audience. That's my process. So I'm now going to narrate the first chapter of the book, Thursdays at Orange Blossom House. And uh, I guess this is the point at which I should say, sit back in a comfy chair, have a cup of tea, and I hope you enjoy what I'm about to read. Chapter one. The house looks the same as it always has, as it looked when she was a wife here, when she was a child here, growing up in these sugarcane fields near Atherton that were once her whole world. The house probably looked like this when her father built it, replacing the more ramshackle dwelling his own father had constructed. Given how flimsy the wooden structure is, she is regularly surprised that it hasn't fallen down. A house on stilts, like all the other Queenslanders around here. Ridiculous, really, that such a thing should exist. But it is still here, like her. From this position she has a view of the cane and the hills behind it. Emerald green they are, all year round. Right now they're the backdrop to the dark orange of the flames turning the sea of cane from green to black and brown. When she was a child, Grace Maud thought the burnt fields were dead. She still wonders how nature can haul itself out of such wreckage and renew. Can I get you anything, Mum? Tom appears in front of her, lines streaking out from the corners of his eyes, grey strands in his hat-flattened hair. He looks like he has more years on him than he ever has when she thinks about him. In her mind, he's always young. Maybe that just means she's too old and her brain is stuck in gear somewhere around the 1970s because he hasn't been young since then. What are you doing in here, she says, then sniffs the air. There's a smell that takes her back to childhood and flashes her forwards through her life. It's the smell of family and familiarity, of promising futures and hopes dashed. That cane's still burning. Aren't you meant to be watching it? Are you telling me off, he says. And while there's a little of the tone of the wounded child in there, she can hear mischief too. He's always been cheeky. 
Yes, I believe I am, she says. You're the boss now. You're meant to be keeping an eye on things. Now, he snorts. She knows why he's snorting. In truth, he's been the boss since she decided to step back nine years ago at the grand old age of 65. No brothers to inherit the place after her father died. The war took care of that. No husband to help her either. She took care of that. So she'd been running it mostly on her own for a while. Then Tom said he'd leave the city and come back to help her. Luckily for him, his wife Vivian wanted to come too. That was the only reason Grace Maud felt she could step back. Tom had someone to take care of him while he was taking care of the farm and the business and the workers and everything else that comes with growing cane and burning cane and cutting cane and shipping it off to be made into sugar and molasses and all the other things that a country needs to stay sweet. Grace Maud, says Viv as she enters the room, bending down to kiss her mother-in-law's cheek. Have you been sitting in here alone all this time? Tom didn't tell me. She glares quickly at her husband. I would have come to keep you company. Has he even offered you a drink? Cup of tea? Course I have, Tom says tersely. Then his face relaxes. Grace Maud recognises that particular quick step. You say something mean to the one you love, then remember you're not cross with them in particular, but it's too late to take back what you've said. She and Tom do it to each other as well. I just haven't got around to telling him if I want one or not, Grace Maud says, squeezing Viv's hand. Every day of her life, she's grateful that Tom found this girl. A tall, broad-shouldered city lass who has no problem tucking her hair into a hat, pulling on her boots and rolling up her sleeves to get out there and do whatever's necessary to keep the farm going. When Tom met her, he called her the new farm princess because she'd barely been out of Brisbane and she liked the comforts of city life. People can change, that's for sure. Or maybe they don't change so much as adapt. So would you like a drink? Tom says, scratching the back of his head. She smiles at him. No, thank you, love, I'm fine. As she's grown older, her eyesight has become less than perfect. So to her, Tom looks more and more like her father and her youngest brother, Frank. Frank was the brother who returned from the war in 1945, but he was never strong enough to work the cane. Grace Moore doesn't know what happened to him while he was in New Guinea. He would never speak of it. He only made it to 39. Their older brother's name was the last word out of his mouth, and Grace Maud has always wondered if William appeared to Frank right then, as he passed between worlds. She likes to think so. It gives her hope that one of them, or both, will come for her when it's her time. On the mantelpiece are the other Llewellyn family photographs. Her brothers are handsome in their uniforms, and in other photos they're rugged in their working gear. Their hair plastered to their heads in the Queensland humidity. Next to them is a photo of Grace Maud and Ellie Maud. Their father thought it was a good idea to give his twin girls the same middle name and always insisted on people using both names. It was his way of honouring his mother, he would say when anyone asked. He didn't point out that it annoyed his daughters no end and led to much teasing at school. And by the time the girls worked out they didn't have to use the Maud part, it was too late and they'd grown accustomed to it. Besides, it bound them together. They were Grace Maud and Ellie Maud, the Llewellyn twins of Atherton. Even after Ellie Maud moved to Melbourne, married a Hungarian man and took his name, she was still Ellie Maud, still Grace Maud's most beloved person. When Tom was a baby, Grace Maud would sit in this same spot, 
nursing him, gazing at the photos and the view, the panorama of her life and lifelines. She never tires of any of it. That's not why she moved into town. She moved because Tom and Viv needed to have their own home, even though they said they wanted her to stay. Their daughters, Felicity and Edwina, were grown by then and living elsewhere, but they come home occasionally, and Grace Maud knows the place would be too crowded with her here too. Besides, her great nephew Luca needs his own space, as Grace Maud is reminded when he ducks his head to walk in the side door and only takes a couple of strides to reach her. Ellie Maud's husband was a giant, and their grandson is six feet four. GM, Luca says, bending in half to kiss her cheek. That's what he's always called her, partly because great aunt doesn't appeal to her, or aunt, for that matter, because it has a hint of dowager about it, and she likes to think she's not old enough for that, and also because he's young, and the young seem to enjoy, enjoy adapting their elders' names. Luca, darling, she says, is Tom being nice to you? She glances at her son, who rolls his eyes. Kid gloves, mum, like you told me. I did not, Grace Maud says but her indignation is fake. She did ask Tom to go gently on Luca in his first weeks on the farm. He is helping them out after all. It isn't his dream to be a cane farmer. Just because university didn't turn out to be right for him and he left after one semester, that doesn't mean he's going to stay with them forever. Luca has never spent more than a few days in a far north Queensland summer or spring and once he realises what it's like to live in humidity for months on end, he might head for Cairns Airport with nary a backwards glance. It's fine, GM, Luca says, grinning. His dark brown curls fringe his face, and Grace Maud can see that his already olive skin has taken on that look of baked-in dirt that is the result of layers of suntan. Uncle Tom hasn't got me doing anything dangerous. Tom, mate, says Tom, who is not Luca's uncle but his second cousin. Just Tom. Luca nods. Sorry, forgot. Um, Tom, they're asking for you. Something about the plough? Sure, mate. Mum, you staying for dinner? Grace Maud looks from her son's expectant face to Viv's. She knows they genuinely want her to stay, but being in this house that is no longer her home has made her more nostalgic than is good for her. It's why she doesn't visit often. She's only here today because it's the first day of burning and Tom insisted she come, as if it's a ritual that she has to take part in every year. It's nice that he still thinks of her as being part of the business. It's her name on the title, so she supposes it remains her business too. No, I think I'll get back, she says, while it's still light. What she really means is, while it's still light enough for you to not tell me that I'm too old to drive myself home. That's been their one battleground lately, the fact she won't give up her licence. Why should she? Not being able to drive would sentence her to a life stuck in her house and she can't bear the idea. Tom looks disappointed and she's caught off guard. She forgets sometimes that he loves her. It's so easy to forget when it's never said, even when she knows that he's like her in that respect. They use actions, not words, to convey what they feel. Thank you for having me, she says, pushing herself up from the chair with great effort. She sits too much these days, and it's made getting up more difficult than it should be. All those years of riding horses when she was younger have made for stiff hips now, and they complain as she half waddles towards her handbag. Tom, Viv, and Luca follow her down the stairs to her car. See you, Mum. Tom bends and kisses her on the cheek, then Viv does the same. 
GM, Lucas says as he wraps his long arms around her. She squeezes him briefly, then turns and lowers herself into the driver's seat. The air is heavy with the cane smoke and she looks towards the fields that are on fire. No matter how many times she sees it, she wonders at the majesty and brutality of it, growing these verdant crops then setting them ablaze to prepare them for cutting. She's seen that pattern in her own life, allowing something to grow, then doing something dramatic to pare it back, or to destroy it. Perhaps it suggests that she's heartless, or perhaps it's all she knows. After a childhood spent observing the pattern, it's in her blood and her marrow and the very gristle of her. She has known for a long time now that the way we grow up leaves an imprint on us that is both profound and invisible. Our own individual system of ley lines. And she has spent her lifetime wondering if all we do is follow those lines without knowing why. Our course plotted before we are even conscious of it. Thank you, Sophie. That was a beautiful introduction to the world of Grace Maud and her family. And I love that really iconic Australian scenery of, you know, the cane fields on fire and how Grace Maud compares it to her own life. Now, can you believe that Sophie only writes for one hour a day? Yes. And while writing this novel, she had a few weeks off for surgery. So there you go. If you have an hour a day, you can become a best-selling author just like Sophie Green. Thursdays at Orange Blossom House by Sophie Green is out now with Hachette Australia and you can find it at any good bookstore or online. If you'd love to write your own best-selling novel, then you should start with Creative Writing Stage 1 at the Australian Writers' Centre, which will help you learn essential skills, fundamentals and build your writing community. That's what Kanina May did before going on to publish her women's fiction novel, The One. My name's Kanina May and I'm an author. I've done several courses with the Australian Writers' Centre over the years and they've definitely made me become a published author. Before I started doing courses, I was working in television production. I loved this and have always loved story. The creative writing course really set me on the right path for getting the one where it needed to be. I had a few scenes that I thought were the start of the book, but after doing that course, I realised that that happened much later in the story and I needed to come back and start way beforehand. So it kind of put me in the right place for the story. Um, additionally to that, I think it gave me just the motivation to keep going. I came away feeling really inspired and I knew that I wanted to complete it. I wanted to get my women's fiction book on the shelves. I'd been going to quite a few festivals where so many authors were saying how important it was to create an author platform. So I decided to take the plunge and enrolled in the Build Your Author Platform course. It's about creating yourself an online presence and being able to connect with other writers, other authors, whether it's fans or people that have written books. I had had an online presence for about two years before I got my book deal. So I had, had, I had made connections and I felt that when I did get the publishing deal, I already had a lot of authors that knew of me and were really genuinely happy that I had broken through and gotten that first deal. Through the course at the Australian Writers' Centre, I discovered a great writing community. I came away with the motivation and inspiration to keep on going. 
I definitely recommend the Australian Writers' Centre for any course. I think it's a brilliant place. I always listen to the podcast. It's always inspiring. I constantly want to do more courses. I think there's always more to learn. There's always places to be inspired. And there's always connections to make. There's friendships. I've got some great friends out of doing courses and meeting them at festivals and reaching out to other authors. Definitely go for it. If you'd like to find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. Thanks for listening to Story Sessions of So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find more details about the podcast and a wealth of writing resources and courses at writerscentre.com.au. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre. Do connect with us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at writerscentreau and, of course, connect with us personally in our free podcast listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. Alice and I will be back to our regular programming in the next episode. Thanks for listening and I look forward to chatting to you again next time.